Now, tonight we want to begin to examine this section by looking at the structure of chapter 4, 14 to chapter 5, verse 10. And so as you scan uh, your outline on the handout and also uh, begin to look at uh, chapter 4, verse 14 and chapter 5, verse 1, uh, what do you observe in those two verses. Art, your head went up first. Well, high priest. Very good. You notice high priest is parallel or symmetrical. In both of those verses. And uh, who is being uh, addressed in that section as the high priest? In other words, what's that section about? Who's the subject of it? Maureen? It's Christ, all right? So we have in that opening uh, bracket, all right, a uh, symmetrical, shall we say, mini-incusio of the high priesthood featuring Christ as the subject. Now, let's skip down to verse 5 of chapter 5 and verse 10 of chapter 5. I'm going to skip over the middle for the time being. Let's take a look at the uh, antipodes here for a moment. And what do you see as you scan 5.5 and 5.10? Loretta, what do you notice? Okay, do you see anything there? Back to you, Art. Well, uh, Christ was appointed by God. Maureen? Marge? Mike? High priest again. Notice in verse 5, high priest, and in verse 10, high priest. So we have a parallel at the opposite ends of this section. High priest is a structuring device between 414 and 51, and that section is focusing upon Christ. Loretta, who is the subject of chapter 5, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 10? Who's the subject? Who's the focus there? It's Christ Christ again. All right, so notice the symmetry, this exact parallel structure. All right, so that brings us to the sandwich in between. All right, so we want to now take a look at 5.1 and 5.4. What do you find there? This may be difficult because of the different versions that you may have, but at any rate, take a look and see if you find anything, and then spit it out, and I'll respond. Art, your head is nodding. Uh, Appointed by God. Appointed by God. Now, is that parallel in verse 1 in your version? No, 
One says appointed to represent them, and the other one says called by them. Okay. No, I want something that's uh, stronger than that. Does anyone have a New American Standard? Yes. Maureen, what do you see? Um, 5-1. Okay. Taken from among men. Taken. Very good. Taken from among men in verse 1 and takes in 5-4. Now, some of your versions may have the word receive in 5-4. It's in italics in the New American Standard. The difficulty here is that you don't have the Greek text in front of you, but the very same Greek verb is used for taken in 5.1 and taken in five, and takes in 5.4. And in New American Standard, the italicized occurrence of received after that word takes in verse 4 is a reflection upon the fact that the Greek verb occurs there. All right, now the Greek verb uh, lambano, which is uh, translated here, uh, <coughs> taken in a New American Standard, uh, can also mean receive. So some of your versions may have receive in verse 1 of chapter 5 instead of take. If so, it is an alternate or possible translation of that uh, Greek term. <coughs> in any event, we have parallel Greek verbs here which segregate or structure 5-1 to 5-4, translated either taken or receive, either one. Now, the question is, who's the subject or who's the object of this section, 5-1 to 4? Focusing on whom? Marge? She has a deep sigh there. That's a sigh of unknowing, or at least mystery. Okay? It looks to me like he's talking about the uh, Aaron. Yes, this is Aaron or the Aaronic priesthood. All right, now now you understand why we have the sandwich. Now you understand uh, why our author has placed this structure in the text. Uh, The first section deals with Christ as the great high priest. The last section deals with Christ as the great high priest. And in between, he sandwiches the Aaronic priesthood, or the priesthood of Levi. Now, why he's doing this is in order to show a comparison or a contrast between the two. Antithesis is probably a little too strong here, but nonetheless, there is an opposition between the two priesthoods we want to unpack and he will detail, in fact, from chapter 4, verse 14, through the end of chapter 10, he is going to concentrate almost exclusively on the priesthood of the Old Testament, and particularly the priesthood as it exists within the context of the tabernacle, not, if you will notice, within the context of the temple. We want to address that uh, in a moment as to why he does that, But nonetheless, uh, this outline is kind of uh, setting up a lengthy exegetical or interpretive or expository comparison or contrast or antithesis between Christ and the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. And I may add, by implication, the Melchizedekian priesthood, because he's going to bring Melchizedek into this paradigm as well. So he's setting us up in this section 
for what he's going to feature in the next several chapters. This contrast or uh, difference between the, uh, the uh, priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of Aaron. All right, now, uh, he makes this structure even more concrete and even tighter uh, with the hook words that he uses to transition from one section to another. And so let's take a look at the hook words, beginning with 4.16 and 5.1. Do you notice a word that hooks together, that is, is repeated from 4.16 to 5.1. Once again, your, ver- your versions may be different here or may vary. So let's see what you come up with, and then I'll respond on the basis of what is in the Greek text. Yes, you're a little bit puzzled, and, and I'm not surprised at that because it. Yes, uh, Stephen. Received. It, yes, it is received again, but it is translated in five one in the New American Standard at any rate as taken. <clears throat> but nonetheless, it's the same Greek word lambano that we had in the previous uh, discussion of uh, receive or taken in five one and five four. So, <clears throat> for the sake of uh, uh, using the same consistent vocabulary, I'm going to say that the hook word receive, which is clearly in 416 and probably appears in most of your English translation, is also the same word receive but translated taken in some of your versions in 5.1. It is the same Greek verb. All right, now, <clears throat> the hook word in 416 is describing something we receive from whom? Come back to you, Loretta. Who are we receiving something from in 416? From, take a step further, who's from the great high priest? Yes, from Christ. All right, so this reception here in 416 is also reflective of the object of that section. 416 to 414 to 51, namely Christ. You're receiving something from Christ as the great high priest. All right, now in 51, what is being received or who is the object of uh, the taking or receiving as the case may be, depending upon your version? Maureen? Every high priest? No. Stephen? God takes. No. No. Who is the subject? Who's the subject of this unit? No. The Aaronic priesthood. This is what you're receiving from the Aaronic priesthood, from Aaron's line, okay, from the the Levitical line of of descent. So notice, he brings a transition in the hook word. It's transition from what is received as a result of Christ's great high priesthood and what is received as a result of the Aaronic priestly intercession. All right. So then he continues in 5, 1 to 4 with that Aaronic priestly characterization. Right now he uses another hook word as he moves from transition between 5, 4 to 5, 5. What word does he use to transition here? Now this one's a little easier to pick up. 
five four to five five. Do you see it, Loretta? Do you see a word that occurs in both verses? It'd be easy for you to skip it, but it's there in both verses. Mike, do you see it? I haven't picked on you tonight. Is it take? No. No. Terry, do you see it? Four. No. No, David, do you see it? I haven't even asked you. I haven't even given you a chance tonight, David. David, do you see it? Not that quickly. Art? I'm going to unite with somebody else and say, take upon yourself. No. It is a reflexive pronoun. Do you see it, Scott? Uh, Loretta? No, I don't know what that means. You don't know what it means? Yes, himself. A reflexive pronoun is a pronoun that myself, yourself, himself, ourselves, reflect ourself, reflects on you. Do you understand that, uh, Loretta? Do you understand the grammar or why it's called a reflexive pronoun? Him, that's an objective pronoun. Her, that's an objective pronoun. Herself, myself, yourself, that's a reflex. You're talking about yourself. So you reflect on yourself. Okay? Yes, the himself the reflexive pronoun here, exactly the same in the Greek text. This is the hook word that is the transition between this section on the Aaronic or the uh, Levitical line. And once again, Christ the great high priest. <clears throat> All right, now, once again, we want to ask the question that we did with the previous hook word section. Himself in 5.4 is whom? Aaron and his line. Very good. Aaron and the Levitical line. Himself in verse 5, K is whom? Christ. It is Christ. Very good. Notice, once again, his hook words are transitional devices as he slides between the comparison of the priesthoods that he is uh, symmetrically relating. This is a very tightly organized and structured piece of literature. And the clues are in the Greek text. Unfortunately, you don't read the Greek text, and so we have to do the best we can with the English translations. So we have some variation with this uh, in middle section, whether it's received or take or whatever. But nonetheless, if we read the original version, the inspired version, we can see it in the Greek pattern. All right, do you have any questions about that? I want to point out one other little thing here in this hook word paradigm, Okay. You will notice that the transition from uh, 416 to 5.1, which we've already outlined, 416 is talking about Christ, referring back to Christ. So let's label that A. And 5.1 is referring to anybody? Aaron. Aaron. So we're going to label that B. Okay, now we come down to 5.4 and 5.5. Okay, the transition between uh, Aaron and Christ. 5-4 refers to whom? Aaron. So we're going to label that B prime. And 5-5 five five refers to Christ. And we're going to label that A prime. Perfect chiasm in his hook word paradigm. You see, he shifts in a perfectly symmetrical mirror-like structural paradigm chiastically from the one to the other.
All right, any questions about the structure? Now, we've identified the structure. Okay? Now, the structure isn't just an interesting diagram that Denison puts out on your handout, okay? The structure is outlining the way the mind of the writer is unfolding his argument, his exposition. You're following the theology of the mind of the writer as you follow the structure that he has placed in the text, okay? All right, so... What's the function of verses 12 to 13, which we even haven't even commented on and did not comment on last week? What's the function of verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4, which are discussing what subject? Anyone? March? The Word of God. Okay. So the Word of God is being described in 4, 12 to 13. How does it fit the context that we are talking about from 5, 4.14 on, this priesthood context. All right, we just finished in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, a consideration of what idea? Stephen? The Sabbath rest. In verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest to the people of God. So we just finished a consideration of the Sabbath rest. Now, what are we going to talk about beginning with verse 14 of chapter 4? The high priest. We're going to start talking about priesthood. Okay, so shifting from Sabbath to high priesthood. All right, so 12 and 13, talking about the Word of God, don't seem to compute, do that. It doesn't seem to connect. It doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason for why there's a discussion of the Word of God as a, a two-edged sword, living, active, and sharp, etc. What, why, what is this doing here? All right, now we must, we must think like the writer, Stephen. Going to say uh, he urges them to unite, uh, uh, unite the word by faith. No, no, all of that is true, but that's not why he's got it here. Mark, you're going to catch flies if you keep your mouth open like that. So, uh, well, he goes from the rest to the high priest, and the connecting is to say that we are sinners and God knows our sin. But that, what does that have to do with the Word of God? Why did he stick in these two verses about the Word of God? How does his mind work? David? Uh, I'm sure my answer isn't going to be sufficient, but uh, faith has to have a working object. No, already it's not. You're not on. You're not even close. You have to think like the writer thinks. All right, now ask yourself. He's talking about the Word of God here in what appears to be a disjunction. So, where did he last talk about the Word of God? Maureen, you muttered. All right, but the moan, I like the moan. That's the moan of semi-knowing. That's the moan of illumination. Marge, do you remember? Art? Exactly, in verse 1 of chapter 1. All right, now, he talked about 
the word that is now spoken in these last days through the Son. God who spoke his word through the prophets in time past, spoken in these last days. What did he do in that beginning section by using the word of God? He used it as a header, didn't he? He used it as an introduction. He used it as a point of organization. It's at the top of a discussion. And what's that discussion about? He's going to the high priest to the next section. Now go back to what he was doing in chapter one. Tell me what he was talking about. He, and God and Jesus. Jesus as who? The son. Jesus as who? David the Ark? God. Jesus as who? You're not wrong. Jesus as who? The Son. The Son of God. Exactly. All right. So he's using his header in chapter 1 to introduce the Son of God. Now, in that section, at K, in that section on the Son of God, he brings him into comparison with whom? You already said it, okay? Angels. The angels. All right, so you're following his argument, all right? So he begins by saying, out of the word of God, we're going to talk about the eschatological word, the eschatological revelation, which is about the eschatological son. Okay, now we're going to talk about the eschatological son in relationship to angels, in relationship to Abraham in chapter 2, in relationship to Moses in chapter 3, in relationship to Joshua in chapter 4. Okay, he's greater than all of them. He uses the word of God as the beginning introduction. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to anchor what I'm saying about the son of God in the word of God. Now, why is he doing in 12 and 13 of chapter 4, why is he bringing the word of God in again? God. Well, I, I happen to think that it, that it may relate to the fact of the rest, and they're they're looking toward entering the rest, and the word they, no, they did not no, leave. No, the no, 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 no. You're off the track. Okay. You think the way he does. You think in parallel categories. He's using it as a header again. It's an introductory cause. He's going to start by anchoring his next section in the Word of God. This reference in 12 to 13 is not to what preceded it. It's what's coming after it. The Word of God is like an active, living, two-edged sword. What's it going to cut through? It's going to cut through all the rigmarole of the superstition about the Aaronic priesthood. That's what it's going to do. And so he sets it up at the top of his unit, this very large unit, about priesthood. So the word of God, once again, becomes a standard out of which he is going to derive his doctrine of the high priestly character of the intercession of Christ. How come it has the, the four there, then, if it's not a concluded, if there's not some connection to the previous performance? Uh, it has the four there as an indication that it's for this reason that I'm going to start telling you something else. I know you don't like that. I can tell by the look on your face. It's all right. I don't, you don't have to like it. I like it. <laughs> Whether I am absolutely right or wrong about this, you see what he's doing when he uses the word of God as a, uh, a, a an organizing principle 
for, uh, for grounding or establishing what is going to follow. Therefore, when he quotes the Old Testament so frequently in this section, and in fact, in chapter 8, he will quote the Old Testament the longest of any other New Testament writer in this section in which he's dealing with priesthood. The Word of God becomes the standard barometer for his, his uh, working paradigm. I'm working out of the Word of God on priesthood, on tabernacle, on covenant, on all the motifs that are going to be expressed from chapter 4, 14 on through the end of chapter 10. Okay, so we have a uh, biblical foundation for the eschatological sonship of Christ, chapter 1 through 4, uh, 12, 4, 4, 10, and we have a biblical foundation for the eschatological priesthood of Christ, chapter 4, 14 through 10, 25 or thereabouts. Any other questions or comments you'd like to make at this point, besides telling me I'm wrong about why it's there? I may be, but I'm not persuaded yet. All right. Now, in 4.14, he shifts the narrative paradigm. Now, Art has already alluded to this, and let's see if he remembers what he alluded to. Art, in your explanation of why the Word of God was there in 12 and 13, you made a statement about what I'm after with this question about the narrative shift. Do you remember what you said? I don't. Okay. I'm sorry that you don't remember. You, you were brilliant. Marge, Marge, can you help him? You don't want to lose this moment of brilliance, do we? <laughs> we want to get this on tape. All right. Uh, does anyone remember what he said, or does anyone have their own suggestion as to why the narrator shifts the narrative paradigm? He's shifting from what to what. All right. Stephen, what did we have in chapter 4 at the end of 9 and 10? Sabbath. Sabbath in what context, Marge? In the what? The Sabbath in the what? They think of a story. The Sabbath in the what? What was the storyline that he was using? Terry, what was the storyline he was using for the Sabbath principle? In the wilderness, exactly. That's that. What's art? That's what art said. The Sabbath in the wilderness. All right. So there's your paradigm. There's your narrative. There's your storyline. All right. This is a narrative paradigm. The Sabbath in the wilderness context, where their carcasses dropped, and they would not enter into God's Sabbath rest because of their disobedience. All right. So he's left off of talking about the the progress of the pilgrims. Okay, the sojourners of the old age in the wilderness and the Sabbath motif as a part of their sojourn. Now where is he going in 4.14? What's the motif here? Priesthood. Priesthood. All right. So now now you've got another storyline, don't you? You have the story of what the priest does with the pilgrims on the journey... In the wilderness, right? Because that's where this priesthood originates, correct? And when does the priest do most of his work on the wilderness journey? 
On what day? On the Sabbath day. This is not a juxtaposition. This is a transition. Now he's moving to a more centrally focused narrative paradigm. We've gone from the story of Israel in the wilderness, experiencing the Sabbath in the desert, anticipating an everlasting Sabbath rest, most of whom fail to enter into that everlasting Sabbath rest, and yet the weekly Sabbath is still experienced by them as a testimony to that everlasting Sabbath rest. So now, in that central story experience of being in the wilderness, resting on the Sabbath day, what do you do in the wilderness on the Sabbath day? You bring your offerings and your worship to the tabernacle, to the priest, to the altar of God. So that the priesthood on the Sabbath in the wilderness becomes the next storyline in the narrative paradigm. And now you understand why he doesn't do temple. He never mentions a temple in this epistle. It is not in his purpose to talk about the temple because he's talking about the sojourn, the pilgrim motif of the people of God. That's the motif that he wants to ram home. He wants them to identify with that. Because for him, settlement is in the city of God in glory, not in Palestine per se. All right, so we, we, we have the word of God setting up a, a, a biblical foundation to the next narrative shift. The story goes from wilderness on the Sabbath day to the priest in the wilderness on the Sabbath day. And so now we're going to talk about the story of the priesthood. For the next five chapters, we're going to talk about the story of the priesthood. And we're going to get pretty detailed about the story of the priesthood in the wilderness on the Sabbath day and even outside of the Sabbath day. But nonetheless, the central focus of it will be the priestly activity on the Lord's Sabbath. All right, so we haven't changed gears here. We still are using a narrative paradigm. The writer is giving us a narrative storyline. He's giving us a story plot. You see, it's moving sequentially right through the pilgrimage as the people are walking on their journey. So the writer of Hebrews is walking that journey again for his readers because he's drawing a relationship between those Old Testament sojourners and pilgrims and the pilgrims of the New Testament age. And he's going to draw that relationship in this comparative, this uh, contrastive drama for the drama of this new priesthood on this new Sabbath, Lord's Day Sabbath. Okay, that drama is far more glorious than the drama of old. But you are drawn, you see, you're drawn into the drama in both narratives, in the narrative of the old And in the narrative of the new, you're drawn into the drama, which means that that Old Testament drama, which you read it in numbers and so on, is alive to you because you understand it. You are participating in it in a sense that no one else can understand it because you're participating in it in Christ. So that becomes alive to you. You're not a dispensationalist and just preach out of the New Testament. You can preach out of that Old Testament book because it's the book of the church. And you're there. You are there in your patriarchal and matriarchal ancestor and anticipants. You are there. It is your life. 
It's being revealed to you in its former way. And you praise God that now you have the riches of these last days. And you see it better than they, even, they ever did. All right, so now we understand why we have this shift to priesthood, which may look just like it's disjointed, but it's not disjointed. He's following through his plot line. He's following through his storyline. Now we're going to look at priesthood of the sojourners on the pilgrimage in the wilderness. All right, now, this brings us to that phrase in 414, great high priest, which will occur one other time in this epistle in chapter 1021. I just put that for your information in parenthesis. All right, now let's think about this phrase, great high priest, since it's peculiar to the epistle to the Hebrews. Why is he great? Well, within the context, he is greater than Aaron, and he's greater than no Melchizedek. All right, now I'm going to leave Melchizedek off to the side, but David's absolutely right. The superiority of Christ to Aaron is also a superiority to Melchizedek. That's not detailed. All right, it's something that's implicit. So I'll leave it off to the side, but nonetheless, Melchizedek is a human being. He is not a person of the Godhead, and he is not a high angel. He may be, in fact, a mysterious figure, but he is a mysterious human being. He is not some kind of demigod. All right, so I'm gonna, but I'm going to leave him off to the side. Now, the structure that we outlined... Uh, uh, <coughs> Uh, on that uh, opening uh, discussion, that structure supports that greater than, because that's the point of the comparison of the structure. All right, so he's greater than Aaron, greater than the Levitical line, greater than Melchizedek, which recalls that he's greater than, as we said a little bit ago, he's greater than the angels, he's greater than Abraham, chapter 216, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than Joshua, chapter 4, verse 8, in other words, he's greater than all these Old Testament figures, and he's greater than the priests of the Old Testament, who are the central sacerdotal figures of that era. All right, I'll talk about sacerdotal in a minute. You see it on your outline. But first of all, he's beginning to focus on the cult. Now, this term is confusing to 21st century uh, readers. It's confusing because they don't understand Latin. I'm not insulting you because you don't understand Latin. The point is, when we hear the word cult, we immediately think of Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, at least the more uh, traditional Seventh-day Adventists, not the evangelical ones, Christian science. Uh, We think of Christian separatist groups, cultic, James Jones, etc. Okay? That's not what the word means in its original Latin significance or in the way it's used in application to the Old Testament. Cult comes from the Latin word cultus, which means pertaining to worship. Pertaining to worship. It's a very broad term. So, whatever goes along with worship 
whether it's a pagan, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever system it is, Buddhist, whatever goes along with worship in any of those systems is called cult. Cult in the sense of the religious system centered upon a priest. Religious system centered upon a priest. All right, now that means sacrifice, that means ritual offerings, that means a holy shrine or sanctuary, that means rites of worship, and that is explicit when you consider the term sacerdotal. Sacerdotal comes from the Latin sacerdotalis, which means pertaining to worship of priestly ritual, specifically priestly ritual. Which means that a sacerdotal system of worship, which has a priest at the center of it, a sacerdotal system of worship, is a system of religion based upon the power of the priest or the efficacy, that is, the effectiveness of the priestly ritual. In other words, a sacerdotal system uses the sacerdotes, the priest, as the central figure in the religious relationship. He is the key to the God or the divine. You yourself as the unpriestly worshiper cannot get to the divine without the priest. He's the mediator of your worship. All right, now, give me an example of a sacerdotal religion. Roman Catholicism is a sacerdotal religion. It depends upon a priestly ritual, and you cannot get to God except through the priest. Ultimately, you have no direct access to heaven except through the priestly mediation. That also comes by way of the church, for the church in the Roman Catholic system is the spigot of grace. The church turns it on or turns it off. You cannot get the grace except through the church. You can't get it directly from the Holy Spirit. You have to go through the church. The church is the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. The priest is the agent of the Holy Spirit. All right, so the Roman Catholic system is sacerdotal. Any other sacerdotal religious system? Eastern Orthodoxy Orthodoxy is a sacerdotal system. You cannot get into the arena of heaven, that is the cupola in the basilica, which is surrounded by the icons of the saints. You cannot get into that arena except through the priest, which is the reason that in the Eastern Orthodox worship, the priest enters the sanctuary with incense and giving this kind of cloud of mysticism, which envelops the audience. Sometimes in many Orthodox cathedrals, it's so deep that you can barely see your neighbor. That's not true in all circumstances, but it isn't true in many. Nonetheless, both Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, we're saying Eastern Eastern Orthodoxy. There are all kinds of Eastern Orthodoxy. They've got as many denominations in Eastern Orthodoxy as we've got Protestant denominations. They've got Antiochian Orthodox. They've got Serbian Orthodox. They've got Greek Orthodox. They've got Russian Orthodox. They've got Armenian Orthodox. They've got Antiochian Orthodox. They've got a whole mess of, of variations of Orthodoxies. 
There is no monolithic uniform orthodoxy. There's various groups of orthodoxy don't like one another. They fight with one another. They'll excommunicate one another. They may talk about this kind of broad overall unity that they have, and you know they're bigger than anybody, anybody else, but if you start getting into the belly of the beast, they don't like one another very much. All right, so here is this priestly mediated system, okay? Both Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. Anybody else that has a priestly mediated system? David? Historical Judaism, yes. I'm more, really thinking more of Christian uh, groups. What about Episcopal? Yes, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, is a priestly, more oriented system. Now, it is not as crass as Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, so there are some qualifications to be made here. Nonetheless, because of the tradition of the Church in denominating the officer or leader of worship as a priest, the Anglican Communion has held on to that term. That's one thing the Puritans didn't like about the Anglican Church in the 16th and 17th century, and they wanted to purge, purify, Puritan, purify the Church of that remnant of popery, as they called it, and in their own communions they did that, and of course the Westminster Standards have perfected that. But nonetheless, the Anglican communion holds on even to this day in their high church circles to that term priest. Okay, one final group that uses the term priest in Christian in the Christian world. The Lutherans, yes, some Lutherans, not all. Some Lutherans will call their pastor a priest. Not all of them will do it. Probably you're most used to a Lutheran pastor being called pastor. They like that term, okay? Which is probably the majority term. But nonetheless, there are some Lutheran communions where he is labeled a priest. All right, now, we have this epistle in which we're talking about the priesthood of Christ and we're thinking about Christian movements and Christian denominations that retain, retain the term. What group of Christians has abandoned the term? Yeah. And we are? <laughs> More broadly, we are evangelical, we are... We are Protestant. So when did we abandon the term? At the Protestant Reformation. Why did the Protestant Reformation abandon the term priest for the leader of Christian worship? You are reading the book because of the epistle to the Hebrews. That's the reason they abandoned the term. They abandoned the term priest at the Reformation because the epistle to the Hebrews taught them that there was only one final everlasting priest and high priest, and that was Jesus Christ. And after his priestly work was completed, there is no one else who has the right to the term nor is there anyone else who needs the term, and we don't need it, because the Old Testament priesthood is fulfilled, completed, and abolished in him.
Maureen? Except that we are all called priests. Okay, we're not using it in the same way. Okay? That is a term in which you're, uh, you're, you're uh, uh, making... Uh, you're making an observation about the general intercessory character of all believers. All right, we're not talking about a sacerdotal role when we're talking about the priesthood of all believers. It's two very different times. We don't want to confuse our categories here. Okay. All right. So, what the reformers did, from Luther to Zwingli to Calvin and beyond, what they did was they read their Bible. And they read the epistle to the Hebrews. And in reading their Bible, remember, the Protestant Reformation broke out because these monks who were Roman Catholic priests before they left were finally reading their Bibles. And not just reading Thomas Aquinas. And reading it now with understanding that it was the sole sufficient authority for determining how they would practice their religion. And in reading their Bibles, they started to read the epistle of the Hebrews, and it's almost like the lights went on to say, Christ is the final high priest. He's the eschatological, the once and, all, once and for all high priest. What are we going around talking about the Pope being a priest for? What are we talking about ourselves being priests for? We don't have any right to that term. Why would we want it? When Jesus is all the priest I need. And he is all-sufficient priest at that. And so they began to write confessions about this. And if you turn to the second page of your outline, you've got the confessions. We begin with Zwingli. Article 17 of his 67 articles from 1523. That Christ is the one eternal high priest... From this, we deduce that all those who pretend to be high priests oppose the honor and power of Christ. Indeed, they reject it. But Zwingli is not done. In the fourth paragraph down that begins in the same chapter, verse 24, notice that he's citing Hebrews chapter 7. In that paragraph that begins in the same chapter, about midway through there on the right-hand side, you see the sentence that begins, What folly is it? What folly is it to choose substitute priests for him who gives up neither his office nor his life? Does any earthly priest give up his office or his life? No. Who gave up his office and his life? Jesus Christ gave it up. Christ is the everlasting priest. He's the once and for all priest who puts an end to priesthood. Last sentence in that paragraph. Behold how they deny Christ and insult God, who thus make themselves priests. That's a direct quote from your Protestant ancestors. The Protestant Reformation was not only a battle over sola scriptura and sola fide, it was a battle over sacerdotalism. It was a battle over whether there is an earthly priest between you and God, and if anyone has a right to that title. If Jesus, according to the Epistle of Hebrews, is the great high priest. Finally, second paragraph from the bottom of that page begins in the same epistle, chapter 8, verse 1. Again, he's continuing to cite the epistle to Hebrews. This is Vingley again, last line of that paragraph. What presumption is it, therefore? To make oneself a high priest or minister when he alone is our high priest 
who sat down on the right hand of God. Do you know any earthly human priest who is sitting down on the right hand of God? And the fact that this great high priest, Jesus our Lord, sat down on the right hand of God means what? What does it mean? Marge? His work is done and priesthood is over. It is finished. It's abolished with the ceremonial law. It's gone. That's what you're learning from reading your Bible. That's what you're learning. What's what Zwingli is learning from reading Hebrews chapter 4 through 10. And Zwingli's not alone. Luther, Calvin, Beza, all of them. Your evangelical, better Protestant forefathers and foremothers are reading the text. And they are saying, how can I, how can I go to a priest? How can anybody claim that title? It's dishonoring to Christ. It's a slap in the face of Christ Jesus, the great and final high priest, who alone is my intercessor. All right, the next page of your handout. We go across the English Channel for a moment to John Olasco and his London Confession of 1551. Now, John Olasco was born in Poland, was converted from being a Roman Catholic priest, married a lovely wife, took a church in Emden, which in the 16th century was in Holland. When Charles V, the emperor, Holy Roman Emperor, Roman Catholic, made war on the Protestant states, John Olasco and his little congregation in Emden was forced out of Holland. And they went across the English Channel at the invitation of Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and King Edward VI, the King of England. And they settled in England and they started what was called a stranger's church. A stranger's church. Sounds like a group of pilgrims, doesn't it? For we are strangers and sojourners on the earth. A stranger's church. Because they were Dutch immigrants. They came to London. They settled there in 1550. And Alasco wrote a confession for that congregation. Notice what he says in that big paragraph on page three. By these characteristics in the epistle to the Hebrews, the Holy Spirit distinguishes for us the priesthood of our Lord Jesus from all the remaining priesthoods. Now, skipping down to the middle of that paragraph, to the sentence that begins on the right-hand side, also since we believe. Also since we believe. You see where I am. On the right-hand side of the, of the paragraph, also since we believe the Lord Jesus to be also the Christ in his supreme and eternal priesthood, we should separate ourselves from those who either create another priesthood in the presence of that one, namely Christ's priesthood, as if it alone cannot be enough for our salvation, or who are now solely pursuing another method of salvation, or who are vainly thinking of another reformation of the church of God, as if the supreme, eternal, and all-sufficient priesthood of the Lord Jesus neither ought nor can exist. He's referring there to the Anabaptists and others who are seeking another way of salvation. Not just the Roman Catholic priestly and sacerdotal way of salvation. But notice how Alasco, who was a Roman Catholic priest, notice how he expresses it. 
We should separate ourselves from those. For they are those who will not read the epistle to the Hebrews and allow it to determine their practice. Well, then you say to me, Mr. Dennison, then how come the Roman Catholic Church is content with priesthood? How come the Eastern Rite churches are content with priesthood? Don't they read the Bible? Yes. Well, then where do they get their priesthood, their sacerdotal cult? Why don't they give it up when they read the Epistle of the Hebrews? Do they read the Epistle? Sure, they read the Epistle of the Hebrews. But why don't they give it up? like our Protestant forefathers did? And the answer is, all you Fiddler on the Roof fans, tradition. I'm going to leave that one to the side. I'm going to just deal with the theological argument. I'm going to leave the political argument to the side. You're not wrong, Maureen. But, but I'm going to leave that one off to the side. The justification for it does not require the epistle to the Hebrews. You understand? Not scripture alone. You understand? So they can continue to talk about priests. They continue to talk about sacerdotal rites. They continue to have ritual rigmarole with crucifixes and re-sacrificing Jesus every time they observe the Mass. They can do all of that without any egg on their face, without any sense of shame, without any guilt. They're doing it with a clear conscience. Why? Because they don't believe in the Bible alone. It is not the epistle to the Hebrews only that determines what they practice or what they believe. It is tradition. And tradition has passed down this notion of a priestly sacerdotes or sacerdotal figure in the worship of the Christian community, Eastern Rite and Roman Rite. And so they hold on to it just as tightly as we hold on to Scripture alone. Because that tradition they believe and teach is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And having bought that, you see, they have left Christ alone and Scripture alone. But that is the issue. The issue is, having accepted that, they have cast their lot with those who say, that Christ alone is not sufficient, nor is Scripture alone sufficient. I have to add something else to it. All right, now you've seen some primary documents from the Protestant Reformation, from the pen of Ulrich Zwingli and from the pen of John Olasco. I only chose these because they are particularly poignant. I could multiply them a thousand times over from other documents of the Confessional Protestant Reformation. You can see them in the first two volumes of my Reformed Confessions of the 16th and 17th century, if you want to look at more. I mean, there are over 2,000 pages of these kinds of documents there. So, I'm not talking about something that is my private idea. You understand this? My interpretation of the epistle of Hebrews agrees with the interpretation of the reformers. 
the Protestant and Calvinistic reformers, as well as the Lutheran ones, Luther, Lutheran. So this isn't a harebrained idea of Denison. You, know, you may think I have a lot of harebrained ideas, but you've read the primary document. It's in print in front of your face. Now you know what it says. Okay, now since that's what the primary document says, because the primary document says that's what Scripture says, you're driven from the primary document confession back to Scripture, which stands above the confession, and you say, all right, here I stand. I will stand on the Word of God alone, and I will stand on the priesthood of Christ alone, and I will not allow anyone else to take that from me. Well, I hope you see it clearly. Because that's what the Epistle of Hebrews is clearly showing you. It is liberating. It is wonderfully liberating. All right, we've come to uh, our break time. So I'll let you uh, come up for air. And let this percolate in. But please, when you go home or over the next couple of days, read over the rest of the paragraphs that are there from Zwingli. Read them over, think about them, weigh them, consider them. And remember, he is explaining the verses of the epistle to the Hebrews in those paragraphs. And I hope you'll come away from it loving Zwingli as much as I do. You're, you can get your coffee or whatever, David. This has got to be a most remedial question. Hebrews 10.4 says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. What did the Levitical sacrificial system accomplish other than a didactic purpose if it couldn't take away sin? What, what did it accomplish? <clears throat> He accomplished <coughs> driving the believer or the worshiper beyond the blood of the bull and the goat. That in <coughs> offering or laying hold of the blood of the bull and the goat, he was laying hold of the blood of the Lamb of God. By faith. You will notice on your outline there under comment on the great high priest that I had actually uh, one, two, three, and I uh, have only really addressed number one, though implicitly I've talked about number two, but let's do it explicitly so you know uh, what I was uh, wanting to be uh, placed in uh, in those uh, categories. <clears throat> number one, of course, is the greater than Aaron and Melchizedek. <clears throat> uh, we already uh, talked about that one. Uh, number two is going back to the phrase great high priest. Why is he the great high priest? Because he is the eschatological high priest. He is the once and for all high priest. That is the reason he alone has that title great high priest. No one else is given that title. So the writer of Hebrews is using a distinctive term. <clears throat> It's a distinctive phrase. He will talk about the high priest in the Old Testament. He'll talk about Aaron as a high priest later on in this epistle, but he will never call Aaron a great high priest. Jesus is the only one that has this title. Why? Because he is the eschatological high priest, which means he is the once and for all high priest. 
Now, the third thing is in that line, verse 14. Why is he called the great high priest? Do you see it? Okay, I want to come back to that, but I want you to look at another thing in that verse. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. Now, will you look down to verse 5 of chapter 5? What do you see there? Stephen? He said, you are my son. He is the son of God. <clears throat> what do you see in verse 8? He is the son of God. Notice in the sections of our outline in which the subject is Christ as the priest, he is labeled son of God. And only in those sections. So reinforcing his greatness is the greatness of his person, the greatness of who he is. And the writer reinforces it by repeating it in both of those units which deal with the priesthood, the high priesthood of Christ. He gives him his personal name. Is there any pope in Rome who can say he is a capital S son of God? Begotten of the Father from all eternity? Is there any local Linwood Roman Catholic priest who can say he is son of God, capital S? Is there any Eastern Orthodox priest who can say he is capital S son of God? No. To do so would be blasphemy. Even they would admit that. Well, then why are they not content to yield the title to the one who has the name above every name? Jesus of Nazareth, the divine son of God, the great and final high priest. So he is greater than Aaron and Melchizedek because of who he is. He is the son of the most high God. He is the very essence of the image and glory of God. Chapter 1, verse 3. We've been through that. Now he returns to that rich imagery here and applies it specifically to the high priestly office and role. All right, now on to uh, the ongoing uh, narrative motif after the John Olasco confession. The next question uh, on the outline, and I'm going to come back to Kay on this one. Do you detect an ongoing narrative motif? Now, Kay, uh, you had offered an answer to my previous question in which you said... He went to the. He went to heaven. He went through the heavens. Notice he had passed through the heavens. Right now, do you do you see a narrative motif there? Is there a storyline there? Through sounds it's moving. He's moving. Yes, he's on a what? 
he's on a pilgrimage because he's the eschatological pilgrim. Now, this eschatological pilgrim is the eschatological priest. He is on a journey. He himself has become a sojourner. He's not only the pioneer and perfecter. He's not only the captain of our salvation in the sense that he's the pioneer of the journey or the pilgrimage, but he becomes a pilgrim himself. He walks the journey. He walks the walk. He becomes part of the narrative drama. And as such, in his priesthood, he goes through the heavens, having already been incarnate on the earth, and sits down at the right hand of God to finish his pilgrimage, to complete his journey. So that those who are attached to him as fellow pilgrims have finished their journey in him. He has already entered into his everlasting Sabbath rest. And provisionally, inaugurally, we have entered into it in him. As he has entered into it, we have entered into it already in him. There's the now not yet aspect of the Sabbath that we talked about last week. Same thing is true here. Okay? In his completion of his uh, pilgrim priestly sojourn, he finishes the story, which is a reason we can't turn the page of the story back to the Old Testament priesthood and continue an Old Testament label or title or sacerdotal or cultic ritual in the New Testament age because we don't live back there. That was the beggarly element of the former age. It has accomplished its work. It has been completed. Jesus fulfilled it. He fulfilled it, canceled it, annulled it, displaced it, replaced it with something far surpassingly better. The surpassing excellence, not only of the person of Christ, but of the work of Christ. You have a much better high priest than any Old Testament worshiper ever had. And as we shall see in a minute, as we compare those priesthoods... <clears throat> You participate with one who is eternal. All right. Now, when that word heavens is used there, it's obviously referring to, let's say obviously number one, it's referring to what? The sky. Location? Yes, but it's not the heavens that we see above us. It's the invisible heavens. It's not the visible, it's the invisible heavens. So it's the location of where Jesus is. He is in the heavens, but he's not in the visible heavens. Which raises this very interesting question once again that we've noticed before. The epistle of Hebrews is very much concerned about this distinction between externality and internality, visibility and invisibility. The fact that Jesus has passed through the heavens and is no longer visible as a priest to this community is the writer picking up on something that they are stuck on. They're hung up on a visible priesthood, either because they had come out of paganism where they had visible priests that they could touch and see, or because as Jews they remembered the visible priesthood of the Old Testament that they could touch and see. Is the fact that the visibility of the priesthood had them hung up. Jesus was invisible, so he wasn't such a good priest. 
He wasn't as valuable because he wasn't tangible. Is that reason people are attracted to Catholicism and to Eastern Orthodoxy? Because they've got a tangible, visible priest? Is that one of the reasons? Because they're not content with the invisibility of the priesthood of Christ? The fact that he has passed through the heavens? Is the writer of the Hebrews really subtly revealing something that is disturbing this community is one of the reasons that they are babes and not mature. One of the reasons that they are not content and they're sliding, they're drifting. Is that one of the reasons they're not coming to worship anymore? Is that one of the reasons there are tensions inside this community? Because they are obsessed with the visible. And in chapter 11, verse 1, he will say, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The invisible is the key. It is the glorified Christ that is the key. It is not the Christ that you can touch in the Mass or on the crucifix or in any other symbolic ritual. No, it is the faith Christ. He is more real. Oh, yes, he is. He is more real than anything you can touch and handle. And if he's not, then look to your faith. For you see, that's what the Christian sojourn is about. Walking by faith, not by sight. Excuse me for bringing Paul into the epistle of Hebrews, but he summarizes it so very well. This is a life of living in the invisible. It's a life of hoping in the invisible. It's a life of saying that is real. Not this. Not ultimately this. This is wood, hay, and stubble. This is dust and ashes. This will perish. It will be dissolved in a fervent heat. It is all going to disappear. But that which endures is that arena that faith lays hold of even now, where Christ is. Or is he not real in that arena? Huh? Is he not, is he not real where he sits in heaven? Is that what you're saying? See, your faith lays hold upon him. As the real object of your hope and your salvation. He is vitally real to you. More real. More real in the intimacy of your own soul than your wife or your husband or your children. And if he isn't, then you haven't left wife and mother and children for his sake. Oh, I'm not minimizing the richness of those relationships. But Christ is sweeter, more real, and intimate to your soul than any of them can ever be. Because by faith, he has come into your heart as the real object of your confidence. You're leaning upon the breast of Jesus which is richer by far than any human breast. You see it. You see it. 
This is what martyrs are made out of. Now, I'm not calling you to martyrdom. But you see, this is the reason they would go to death. Because the invisible Christ was so real to them. Faith laid hold of the invisible, real Jesus and heaven itself. All right, number two. In the heavens is where what is? Verse 16. The throne of grace. Now, what is that throne of grace? Why does he use that phrase here? Temple, temple. Tabernacle for you. Thank you. <laughs> Some people don't learn very well. All right. What? What are you talking about, Professor Sandor? We're talking about the mercy seat. Exactly. That's exactly what we're talking about. The mercy seat in the tabernacle is what? It is God's footstool around which are attached what? What is attached to the mercy seat? The cherubim. The cherubim. The cherubim surround what? Ezekiel chapter 1. What do they surround? Mercy seat. The throne of God. The throne of God. The mercy seat is his footstool. Cherubim surround the mercy seat. This is a visualization or a depiction of the throne of God. All right, so the throne of grace here is a comparative uh, analogy to the mercy seat. Okay, that's going to play large in this discussion as it unfolds. No, all right, so that's the reason he holds on to it. Only we don't have a mercy seat or an ark in on on the earth. We've got a throne of grace in the heavens. Why would you want a priest at that mercy seat, which got carried away by the Babylonian captivity and probably destroyed and ground up and used for rings or ringlets or bracelets or whatever else? I'm sorry, Harrison Ford, Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, 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 no. It's not buried in Ethiopia somewhere. It's not hidden in Abyssinia. No, 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 no. This is stuff that fairy tale movies are made out of, but not the stuff of history. Okay, so it's gone. And interestingly, you notice that when the children of Israel, when the Jews came back under Cyrus the Great with the decree to go back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel in 538 BC, they did not, even though they built a temple, they did not put an Ark of the Covenant in it again. They did not. Because the one that God had instituted had been destroyed. And they would not replace the primary edition, the prime copy. Now, it is true in the Herodian temple that they did make one. But that was because of the Maccabean era. So, consequently, the absence of that ark 
after the Babylonian exile is an indication that God put his imprimatur and exclamation point upon it. Something better. There's something better. And it is the throne of grace. It belongs to us in the heavens. All right, now, there's one other point to notice about this expression, the heavens. It is to that arena that we draw near. Notice, he has passed through the heavens. There's a sojourn or narrative motif with respect to Christ. But now we are moving. We draw near. We are also on a sojourn. Our pilgrimage is coming into the arena where he himself has reached journey's end. We are identifying with his pilgrim sojourn. We are pilgrims of the pilgrim, small p pilgrims of the capital P pilgrim. And so we are journeying, drawing near. Notice the present tense. Draw near, present tense. In Greek, a continuous present tense. We are constantly drawing near. An ongoing approach. An ongoing confident approach. Drawing near in faith, continually, constantly, daily. What a sweet image that is. That we are ever continuously in our present life, present tense, ever drawing near in our journey as we sojourn along our Christian pilgrim way. We are ever approaching the throne of grace. Our focus is upon the heavens and Christ where he is and the throne of heaven and the grace and mercy that flows from that wonderful place to us. So Abraham Kuyper writes his great devotional classic, Drawing Near Unto God. And why does Kuyper choose the title? Because of Hebrews 4, 16. Beautiful, beautiful book of Drawing near unto God. But what do we receive as we draw near? Mercy and grace. Aren't those synonyms? What do you think, Loretta? Is he just repeating himself? Is that a redundancy? He's used two different words that mean the same thing? Very good. So either one of them is undeserved. All right? Agreed. Now, would you answer the question as to why he uses it to? <laughs> I'm teasing you a little bit there. All right? We, we don't deny that there are synonyms or there are redundancies in Scripture. In fact, we saw an outline redundancy tonight, didn't we? We saw repetitive patterns, exactly the same words being repeated. So, is he using two different words to mean the same thing here? 
This is a legitimate question. Okay, so it's one we want to ponder just for a minute. Because we tend, don't we tend, don't we tend to say mercy and grace and mean the same thing? Hmm? Or do we make a distinction between them when we use them? I'll come back to you, Loretta. Do you use the terms distinctively or do you use them synonymously? In other words, just in your own popular conversation, do you tend to use them identically or do you tend to distinguish between them? Well, she says, I never thought about it. Okay. This is not a redundancy. They are not synonyms. So, let us ask ourselves, what is the difference in the writer's mind between mercy and grace? Latin will help you here. Latin always helps you. For any of you who know the Latin Mass, uh, whether you know it because you came out of Catholicism, whether you know it because you've sung the great Requiem Masses, for instance, Verdi or Mozart or something like that, you know in all of the great Masses that there is a section called Miserere. Miserere nobis. Okay, what does it mean, Kay? What does Miserere mean? <laughs> Always had an exclamation point after it. Okay, it means have mercy. Have mercy. All right, now what do you see in that word? Misery, exactly. Exactly. See, Latin will help you. It'll help you. What is this? This is God's, let's go back to what Loretta said, they're not deserved. This is God's undeserved favor. To the fill in the blank. Miserable. To the miserable. Because, you see, we want to incorporate that uh, Latin implication or nuance here. Now, the miserable. Now, the sinner is miserable. Miserable because of the curse that rests upon him. Miserable because of the destiny of the wages of his sin. Miserable because of all the grief that his sin brings to him. Sin is a miserable condition. So, miserere nobis. Lord, have mercy on us. True. The depths of that misery vary. There are sinners who extreme experience extreme misery. And the consequences of their own sin bring that upon them in some cases. Nonetheless, this term is specifically directed to the miserable condition of sinners. Now, we don't talk about that very much. That is, that the gospel is a gospel to miserable sinners. Or as B.B. Warfield said in a very famous article many, many years ago, over 100 years ago, that Christianity is a message to miserable sinners. And once that message, namely that miserable sinners are out there hearing this message, once that message is attenuated and you don't talk about them out there as miserable sinners anymore, then you're not really talking about the gospel ultimately. Because miserable sinner Christianity is the Christianity liberals hate. They hate it. They detest it. We are not miserable sinners. We're good people, basically. We make some mistakes, but our mistakes are we don't practice enough social justice. We don't have enough socialism in the United States yet. And so that's the thing that we want to work for in our Christian commitment. 
All right, I'm being sarcastic there, but nonetheless, most liberals, Christianity is called political activism in the name of left-wing politics. That's what most liberalism is all about. It's not about Christianity per se. It's not definitely not about miserable sinners. So they don't want that. <clears throat> but then we come along to the church growth movement, the emergent church movement. They don't like miserable sinner Christianity either because that turns people off. And they want to suck them in. So they got to stroke them and they got to make them feel good about themselves. So as they invite them to their various ecclesiastical nightclubs, they don't use any of this negative terminology. Because they want to give them a narcotic of how to cope. Or if you can't cope, now I've got the narcotic for you today. Okay, just read my website or listen to my rah-rah talk or come to my seminar or, you know, put your money in our offering plate and get my book. Or my pamphlet, or, you know, whatever the game happens to be. All right, now, that brings us to grace. So, again, back to Loretta's comment that this is an undeserved favor. This is an undeserved favor to the... I know you can't use miserable. Okay? We've already used that one. Come on, all you Augustinians. Aren't, aren't all you Protestants Augustinians? I mean, wasn't Calvin an Augustinian? Wasn't Luther an Augustinian? Luther was an Augustinian monk. What, what, what's Augustine famous? What's Augustine famous for? He is famous for his doctrine of grace, his battle with Pelagius and the Pelagians. Now you need a little church history. But at any rate, Calvin is standing, Luther is standing on the shoulders of Augustine. Okay, So, Augustine and Calvin and Luther say, grace is an undeserved favor to the the fill-in-the-blank. This is all sinners included. To the unworthy. To the unworthy. Because what are they worthy of? Damnation and death. Exactly. Now, we could have been redundant here and say it's an undeserved favor to the undeserving. Or we could say it's an unmerited favor to those who are demeriting. Augustine's definition of grace is a free, undeserved favor of God. Free, because you can't buy it. No, because then you'd have a redundancy. Undeserved would mean you can't buy it. He's not using redundant expressions. He's not using synonyms. So, Free doesn't mean undeserved. Undeserved means you're not worthy of it. It's a favor. That is, that it is something that you can't earn. Okay? And where does it come from? It comes from God. Free, undeserved, favor of God. But we still have to define the word free in Augustine's definition. What does he mean by free? You can't earn it. No. That's undeserved. Or that's favor. So he's not using, he's not using redundance. Redundancies here. He's using the term specifically. Unmerited. 
It's undeserved. Liberal? Liberal? Meaning a lot? Meaning he grants it freely? No. Frees you from bondage? No. Is it a gift? It is. He already, we already said it's a favor. So gift is a sin and a favor. Free that he doesn't have to? Exactly. To exactly. Free means what? Okay. True. Free means it's sovereign. It's sovereign. Augustine sounds like a Calvinist, doesn't he? So it sounds like free means predestination. Or free replies to he doesn't have to give it, that he chooses to give it to whomsoever he will. So free, in the Augustinian definition, applies to predestination and election. God does not give it to all. Grace is not universal. Okay? So free, meaning sovereign. Undeserved, meaning it is unmerited. Favor, it's a kindness. It's a gift from God, comes only from God, doesn't come from the church, doesn't come from the priest, doesn't come from you, doesn't come from your good life, because your life's not good enough, really. Okay? Comes only from God. Now, there is a definition of grace that tells it all, really. It covers all the bases. And it was articulated by Augustine in his battle, really battle, furious battle with the Pelagians, and ultimately then with the semi-Pelagians. Semi-Pelagians are the Arminians of the 5th century A.D. Yes, you need a little church history. Well, you really don't need a whole lot of church history except what you just heard. That's enough for you to understand the distinction between mercy and grace. Any questions about that? All right, now that leaves us with a comparison of the priesthood of Christ and the Aaronic or Levitical and by implication Melchizedekian line. In this comparison exercise, let's begin with the term great high priest. Christ is the great high priest. So in that column, we use the term of verse 14 of chapter 4. Now, because this is a comparison and our structural outline at the beginning of this evening's discussion, our structural outline indicating that there was a contrast or comparison between the Aaronic priesthood and the priesthood of Christ would mean that these high priests are what? He's the great high priest. They're the... He's greater there. Lesser. lesser, exactly. They're the lesser high priest. He is the eschatological high priest. Okay, we've indicated that great high priest means he's the once and for all. He finishes priesthood. When he says it's finished on the cross, he finishes priesthood. Okay, he's the once and for all. <clears throat> eschatological high priest, what are they? You're getting close. Chronological? Is that the word? No. No. No? I'm trying to use a big word. Yes, use a big word. (laughs) I want the big word. K's on the right track. Ontological? 
No? You're going to have to use eschatological here. Go ahead, Kay. I was going to say sacerdotal. No. Provisional. Provisional. Semi-eschatological. In the sense that. Okay. In the sense that. You see, they act over and over. They do not act finally once and for all. So there is a perpetual repetition. Yes, they are temporal. That was what was uh, good about Loretta's comment there, that they are uh, acting in time, but it's the point that they are acting successively in time. They're never an end to what they're doing. Sub-eschatological. That's even better. So cross, cross out semi and put in sub. They're sub-eschatological. They're beneath the eschatological uh, priesthood. Now, he's, now, the second thing is, in this 14th verse, he's passed through the heavens. Because as a once and for all high priest, he has a heavenly administration. The administration of Christ's priesthood is a heavenly administration. All right, now what do we say about Aaron and the Levitical priesthood? It is earthbound. It is an earthly administration. Now, as we were commenting a little bit ago, this heavenly administration of Christ is the administration of a priesthood which is invisible. What about the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood? Visible. It is because it's an earthly administration, it is visible. Right. Once again, here's this con- contrast or this antithetical relationship between the two orders of priesthood. Now, the next qualification is in verse 15 of chapter 4. Jesus' priesthood is administered by one... Who is... Verse 15? Without sin. Without sin. Right now, in verse uh, verse two of chapter five, there's a discussion of weakness. Verse fifteen talks about our weaknesses. Verse two of chapter five talks about the weakness of the Aaronic priest. What weakness is this? It is sin. It is moral weakness. That is correct. It is the weakness that comes from sin. So these are synonymous categories. Okay, reflecting upon aspects of our sinful character. All right, now, with respect to Christ who is without sin and therefore without any moral weakness, we notice that the Aaronic priesthood is the antithesis of that. They are sinful themselves and they are morally weak. Chapter, uh, verse 2, chapter 5, specifies that uh, uh, precisely. All right, now, the next phrase is in verse 16, the throne of grace to which we have access, where Christ is. He's admini- he is ministering as a priest at the throne of grace. This is his once-for-all administration of his uh, intercessory priesthood at the throne of grace, eternal in the heavens. What about the Aaronic administration? They minister Where? At the tabernacle, what what in the tabernacle? At the mercy seat, and do they? And uh, how often do they minister at the mercy seat? Once a year. 
where Christ is permanently ministering. He's not in and out. He is permanently and eternally ministering at that throne of grace. Okay, now, next, in chapter 5, verse 1, the high priest offers. How often does he offer? Taking a look at the Aaronic, I'm starting on the right-hand side this time. Taking a look at the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priest offers over and over, over and over. Christ offers once for all, yes, hapax, once for all. In Greek, apox, meaning once and for all. Now, going over on the left-hand side, or right-hand side, rather, for the next one in verse 3 of chapter 5, the Aaronic priest offers for whom? Himself. For himself? And? And the people, for himself and the people. All right, now over to the left-hand side, who does Christ offer for? For the people and not himself. Why? Because he's without sin. Excellent. All right, so Christ offers only for himself, not for himself, rather, but for the people, whereas the Aaronic priest offers both for himself and the people. Chapter 5, verse 3. And finally... In verse 6, what kind of a priest is Christ? He is a priest forever. He is a once-for-all eternal and eschatological priest. And the priest of the Aaronic line is a priest only for time, but not for eternity. Now... Notice that the essence of all of these comparisons, our author's argument is tied to the eschatological ultimacy and eternality of the priesthood of Christ. You cannot think about Christ's priesthood without thinking about what he has said in chapter 1, verse 2, in these eschatological days has come this eschatological priest, has come this eschatological era. If you don't think of it this way, you're not thinking of it the way the writer's written it. The eschatological eternality and sufficiency and completion of the priesthood of Christ makes every other attempt to represent an earthly priesthood a rebuke of the work of Christ and his eschatological priesthood. All right. A couple of minor details in closing. Chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. What event? Garden of Gethsemane. Very good. All right, now, technical point on the translation of this verse. He offered up uh, with loud crying and tears to him who was able to save him. From death, if those of you who have the New American Standard, once again, the superiority of the New American Standard translation, you have a marginal note on the side which says, out of death. <clears throat> the choice of from or out of here. Okay? Let's take the word from and leave it in the text. To save him from death. What would that suggest? 
He might not die. Save him out of death. What does that suggest? Resurrection. Which are you going to choose? You're going to choose out of. Exactly. The marginal note is the preferred reading. Now, the Greek preposition is ek, which can mean from or out of. But here, we have to translate out of. Because to suggest that he's saved from death implies that he might have died, he, he would not have died. That is not the case. We know that's not the case. He died on the cross. So from does not fit the nuance of the Greek preposition. We've got the chain, we've got to translate in terms of the context here. Alright, so the from, the out of rather, is to be preferred for the translation of the Greek particle here. Alright, now 5a. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. How do you understand this phrase, he learned obedience? Is Jesus in need of acquiring new information? No. So what's the writer driving at here? Learning here is not the acquiring of new data, not the acquiring of new information, not like you sitting in this class and learning something new. That's not what he's talking about here. Well, then what is he talking about? Very good. Pete's right on the money. This is the experiential aspect of the suffering, or what we would call the existential aspect. Jesus lives through it. And in living through it, he learns obedience. That is, he submits himself to it and feels it. The suffering perfects his obedience. It's no longer an idea. It's no longer an abstraction. He goes through it experientially and existentially. And by it is made perfect, verse 9. What does it mean he's made perfect? Look up at verse 15 of chapter 4. When we think of somebody becoming perfect, we think of somebody becoming... Hmm? Stick with me in the line of 4.15. If we think of somebody becoming perfect, we think of somebody becoming... Sinless. sinless. But Jesus is... He's already sinless. He doesn't, he doesn't need to be made perfect, namely to be made sinless. So once again, what's the writer doing here? Back to you, Maureen. What did you suggest? Mature, complete. Okay, you're, you're, you're close. You're a little warm. Okay, you're not hot. Stephen? Does he perfect his priesthood? In what sense? In the sense of completing the work. Okay, a little more. It's a little more than that. He does complete the work. In that sense, you could say it's the mature fulfillment of priesthood. But he, David? The flaws, uh, performance, completion of being a priest. Yeah, yeah you're, you're also close. <laughs> okay, here's what he's driving at. He's made perfect by being made perfectly fitted for the office. Perfectly suited to the office. Because of his performance of all of its requirements. Okay? So, he's fit 
because he's performed all the qualities, requirements, duties, obligations, etc., even the sinless perfection that is not required of the office, but nonetheless is topologized by the office. So this term here is, uh, he is made perfect because in completing his priestly intercession, he has been fit for the perfect execution of that office. And no other priest in the whole history of redemption can lay claim to that accomplishment. All right, now we come to the break with the little uh, reflection on the order of Melchizedek, which you will also notice is in verse 6. So there's an internal uh, symmetry in this second section of our outline on the high priesthood of Christ. But now we come in verse 11 to a new section. And so next week, we will look at this new section, which extends to chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, and the most controversial section in the epistle to the Hebrews. The last class. We will break our study of Hebrews, and Professor Sanborn will take over on January 4th, uh, first Thursday of the new year, and he will lead us through a study of the epistle to the Galatians, uh, which will allow me some uh, time the second semester to work on some other projects and to come and enjoy uh, his own presentation. And uh, in part of that uh, project that I'll be working on, uh, a surprise for you if you're interested at the end of the second semester when he's done with his lectures. But that'll give you something to look forward to for Christmas and beyond. Any questions or comments before you leave this evening? Stephen? I guess I'd always thought of mercy more in terms of compassion. That is involved in the Latin term misericordia, which means the mercy of the heart, cordia, M-I-S-E-R-C-O-R-D-I-A, mercy of the heart. Uh, I don't want to leave that out, but specifically when we're talking about an undeserved favor of God, it's the object of that undeserved favor in this case is someone who is in a state of wretched misery. The object here is one is in a state of unworthiness or demerit. The compassion of God or the, shall we say, the, yeah, the compassion, I'll just leave it at that. The compassion of God would be behind both. So in very scholastic, precise categories, Turretin attributes of God categories, we want to make precise distinctions. Which I think the scripture does in various contexts, not necessarily always, but in various contexts, it will do it. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Psalm 51 is a miserable sinner. I'm in a state of misery because of my sin. Okay. Next week, same time, same station.